Hey, everybody, welcome back. Got some big news today. Uh, CPI came out this morning. It's what, 9.1%? Jamie, do you want to give us an update on that? Yes, sir. Um, yeah, consumer price index, um, not necessarily inflation exactly. CPI is more of a, a, a basket of goods um, that the US Bureau of Labor Statistics tracks to give a, an approximate valuation of of inflation and um they were they reported every month how much it's grown year over year um and it was not too hot uh it the the cpi index grew um it, it became 9.1 percent higher oh yeah um before seasonal adjustment that basically means that um you know if you look at all the media outlets they're going to say 9.1 percent inflation um it's not a perfect estimate, but you know, it's, it's something it's, it's the best we have right now for the month of, of June. And I'm just going to highlight some of the, the biggest and lowest um, increases and decreases. Uh, now this is all unseasonally adjusted compared to June, 2021. Um, and so let's see fuel oil increased 98 and a half percent year over year. Um, energy commodities increased over 60%. Energy in general, which includes commodities, gas, fuel, um, or, or energy services, electricity. So all energy as, as a group grew 41.6% year over year. So really, most of this is coming from energy. You know, all, all food items increased between 7 and 12.5% year over year. Um, and like medical services and things like that, apparel, all were all were under um, about 5 or 6% uh, growth year over year. So really the big driver of this has been energy. And so that makes sense, right? We're, we're seeing a lot of these energy companies absolutely skyrocket because because of what we're seeing in the CPI because we're seeing major you know price price increases year over year and they're getting a lot of the benefit from um, you know from from those rising prices now it's going to be interesting kind of to see how you know as as we come on the back half of inflation I think that um, you know maybe not this month or next month but in in you know probably by the end of 2022 we might see um, that that CPI reading start to come down um you know year year over year but and in if that does happen energy is going to have to be the the main driver of that right because because it's pulling up cpi so much already it's if, if it goes down it's going to have to be at least in part because of of that um you know of, of energy prices declining and so it's going to be really interesting to kind of see that um how how that you know impacts energy businesses we're already starting to see energy stocks and energy businesses start to um, pull back on on their share prices now whether that's because we're already starting to see declining prices um or investors are just believing everything's already priced in we i think that's just oil out. i think that's just yeah. the price of oil falling honestly exactly yeah so um yeah uh, very very hot numbers this this month um I mean, obviously, it's going to have a lot of impacts as on um, on you know consumer goods companies, um, especially like apparel, food. We've talked about this a lot before, but especially SaaS software companies. Um, you know, if if inflation's rising and cons and budgets for businesses are tightening, and it's really going to force them to only purchase what they absolutely need, and some of those um, you know other other services that would be nice to have for businesses, but not necessarily mission critical to business operations or DevOps. Um, it's going to be really 
interesting to see how those fall off um, in, in terms of in terms of seeing adoption, in terms of their net revenue retention rates over the coming quarters. So um, really, really interesting, you know, and, and it shows that inflation really has an impact on every single sector around you, not just consumer goods or oil or, or what have you. Yeah, and I also think, well, inflation is different for every single person, too, because my cost of living has gone up much more than 10 percent, much more than nine nine percent in the last year. And that's partly because I drive a gas guzzling truck and I drive a lot, too. And so like gas is actually one of I mean, it's probably the largest cost that I have right now. Um, gas is. And, and so my inflation is much higher than probably your typical Americans inflation. It's different for every single person, you know? So if you're eating a lot of, uh, lean ground beef, or, you know, if you're eating a lot of steak every single week, your inflation is, is going to be a little bit, uh, a little bit higher than other people's do. And so I think that's something that a lot of people don't think about, uh, with inflation is it's not the same for everyone. You look at CPI, it's up 9.1% and you're like, okay, inflation's at 9.1% across the board for everybody. When you look historically and you see in the seventies inflation, oh, inflation raged at eight to 10% for a decade. Well, yeah, according to the CPI, but for every single individual, it's very different. And so I think that's also something to think about. Um, I'm trying to find an apartment in Atlanta right now. And the average price of an apartment has gone up from around $1,300 a month to $1,700 a month in five years. It's a massive increase just in, in such a short period of time. And so, you know, all of these things are, you know, like I said, they're different for everybody, but something you can do to offset this is potentially invest some of your money in stocks and stocks supposedly are the best hedge against inflation because the idea is, you know, if you buy bonds, okay, you buy bonds, typically before inflation or when inflation is starting as inflation gets higher and higher typically what happens is interest rates go up and when interest rates go up the like if you think about it if you bought a bond for you know uh, 3% okay you you got a 3% 10 year and every year you're collecting 3% well that 3% means a whole lot less if inflation's at 9% and so the value of that bond goes down and sure you can hold it to maturity and collect that 3% every single year, but still that value of that bond is not as strong as it was before inflation started raging. And so bonds, not a great hedge against inflation. Now I do think there's some opportunity when bond prices go up, interest rates go up and you have some bond prices that are a lot higher historically or a lot higher in the short, short term history. Um, you know, like, rates are still extremely low. Like if you look back at like the eighties and nineties, like rates were insanely high like close, close to 10% for, you know, the 10 year. So, um, you know, I think uh, bonds are not a good, good hedge against inflation. Stocks probably are the best. That's the rumor. Um, but it's a little tough. It's a little tough as a company trying to pass costs off onto, uh, onto your customers. And there's certain industries that can do, a whole, do this a whole lot easier than other industries. And I think, you know, when I'm looking at, so there's this great chart from Hartford funds and the guy collected a ton of, a ton of data on which industries, which sectors perform the best in a high inflationary period. Um, so I want to pull up this chart and, and just show, you know, 
maybe maybe it can give you an idea of which sectors do the best here. So on the y-axis, it is historically high level of outperformance versus inflation. So for those listening, this is a this is basically a, a chart with a y-axis and an x-axis. The x-axis is historically high probability of beating inflation. So the better chance you have of beating inflation and the y-axis is the high level of outperformance above inflation. And so what you see here is you want to find the sectors in the top right because historically they have outperformed inflation by a large amount. And then going to the right, you know, so not only is it up, but it is, is it to the right? So you have a high probability and a high probability of strong outperformance. And the two sectors that stick out are energy and REITs. Um, to be expected, I guess. Like, I, I mean, I, I don't know what I was expecting going into this, but it definitely confirmed, confirmed my beliefs here. And that's exactly what we've seen in the last year. We see energy stocks taking off fantastic hedge against inflation. And I think part of the reason is inflation, a lot of it is driven by high energy costs. And so the energy companies have a lot more control over their prices than any other companies because other companies are, they're further down the line on, on the supply chain, I guess you could say. The other companies are having the high oil prices come to them and having to deal with it and pass it off to, cons to customers. The energy companies are actually having to raise the prices of the oil itself. And yes, there are some different, I, I'm honestly not an energy expert. I don't know how all of that stuff works in terms of pricing the oil. Um, but I do think they're a little further up in the chain to where it's a little bit easier to pass off that inflation to all the consumers. Um, but you know, you can see, you can see what does pretty bad. You have it, you have consumer discretionary mortgage rates. Um, the reason that mortgage rates would, would do poorly is because of rising interest rates. And when interest rates rise, it's an inverse. You have rates, um, you, you have prices fall. So a mortgage rate sort of works like a bond. Um, and so if you have interest rates that are going up, you're going to have the prices of those mortgage rates go down. Because like I said earlier, if inflation's at 9%, the value of a four to 5% mortgage rate isn't going to be worth as much. Um, and so, you know, you have precious metals and mining, which is, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have a great probability. It has about a 47% probability of, um, of beating inflation, but it has beat inflation by a significant amount on the times that it has. So, um, you know, all, all good things to think about, uh, but really nothing new. I don't think, I don't think it's anything new, but one thing that's interesting to me is the U S equity market, which I assume would be S and P 500. Um, I don't know what index they took here for the study, but the U.S. equity market has, um, it's a little behind both on the outperformance axis and on the probability of beating inflation axis. And I think that probably might just mean that, I, I don't know. What do you, what do you think that means, Jamie? I mean, for, for, I mean, on, on an extremely basic level, it means that the S&P is, you know, underperforming when, when inflation is high, obviously, but that, you know, that's, that's pretty standard. I wouldn't say that I'm surprised necessarily because 
especially over the past, I, I don't know, um, you know, 20, 20 years, at least since, since 2000 and pretty much before they, what is, what has seen a, a you know, a, a lot of success for the most part, um, a lot of consumer goods, a lot of tech, uh, and, or, or IT telecom, um, a lot of financials. And, and if you, if you look back at that Hartford chart, all of those are, you know, not, they're not up, up and to the right. Consumer discretionary and other consumer staples are very far in the, in the, in the bottom left. IT is also pretty much in the bottom left and financials are right in the middle. So, I mean, the U.S. isn't necessarily a huge energy producing or, you know, it, it's not a huge energy energy company, especially when looking at something like the S&P for a long time, the S&P has been um, you know, very low weight on on energy. I believe it's been you know under six percent of the S and P was was in was in um, energy, um, and so it obviously it makes sense that it would underperform during a high inflationary environment because a lot of what um, you know at least over the past twenty years the S and P has focused on does poorly in an inflationary environment. And the same thing goes with my portfolio. I have zero exposure to energy except what I get through like Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> um, you know, a, 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 the vast majority of of my of my holdings uh, are are in tech, consumer discretionary, and financials, and then the rest of it is basically just an S and P index fund. So, very very broadly, I mean, you should expect that because that is historically, um, you know, what has happened. Really really quick, I forgot to mention uh, a, a few factors that uh, about the inflation reading um, for for this month. Just the the estimate was about 8.8%. So uh, a, a reading of 9.1% was pretty, pretty far above um, estimates. And additionally, like, has it been like that every single time they've reported? It seems like it's high expectations. And it turns out to be a little bit higher. Yeah. High, yeah. high, high expectations, higher results. Yeah. Outcome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then additionally, this was the, the highest period, um, highest, the largest 12 month increase since November, 1981. So over 40 years since, um, you know, since we've seen inflation this high, I'm pretty sure it was something crazy like that for the last, um, for, for May's, for, May's um, inflation reading as well. But, you know, the trends continuing this high inflation is really, um, you know, unprecedented. And that's probably why the, the S&P is down something like one and a half percent today or whenever I last checked when the market opened. Yeah, but you also have to think like going forward. I, I mean, I think I think what we're going to see is inflation because this is we're a, when did when did inflation start to to go up do you do you remember was it last fall oh uh, what what do you mean by up because when, i mean it was when did, it was, the, C, when did the cpi hit like nine percent or eight percent or whatever it did well eight percent was only in may may was eight and a half i actually april might have been like 8.1 or 8.3 but march i think was only around six percent um february was under that so, I mean, above 8%, it's been happening for, you know, a few months now. Um, but I mean, if we're talking about over what we've normally seen, which has, you know, traditionally been like 2 to 3% inflation every year, then it's happened since, it's, it, in all of 2022 has been a, a high inflationary period over, over 2%, um, and maybe a little into last year as well. Okay. So yeah, I think the I think the really large numbers started well, 
CPI in May of 2021 jumps 5%. Um, in so 2021? In 2021. That's what I'm saying here from CNBC. Wow. Um, that was before, that was before uh, oil prices started to skyrocket, I believe. So yeah. that's interesting. Um, but yeah, I think there's going to be some difficult comps next year for, mm-hmm. for CPI. And what I mean by that is we're looking at 9.1% year over year from the consumer price index. So it takes all of these different categories and it gives an average price in all these categories of what it means for every single consumer out there. Um, And it's saying this year, 9.1, all your costs are 9.1% higher on average than they were last year. Well, they're up significantly this year. And so, and they, they have been for a while. So starting to go into next year, the comp from 2022 is going to be much harder to see super high inflation on top of that. And, and it could happen. I could be totally wrong, but I would expect us to see somewhere around four to 5%. You got to guess. I honestly, I would be, I would be surprised if it was up near 5%. I think, I mean, Granted, it's very dependent on the Fed and how and how the Fed operates over the over the basically for the rest of the year and how much how aggressively they kind of, you know, step on the brake pedal. But I mean, if if they're doing a two more 75 basis point hikes and then a and then a 50 and then a 50 basis basis point hike, I would be surprised um, to to see it above 5%. And I, I would honestly I wouldn't be surprised if. Um, they they pump the brakes too hard, and we see very small stagnant growth. You know, one to zero percent um, um, in in inflation readings a year from now. But you know, obviously, it's very dependent on what the Fed does, and then how sensitive consumers are to it. Because the Fed can interest, you know, can can increase rates all they want. It doesn't directly, um, you know, affect how consumers how banks react um it's it's only a an influencer we can raise rates to make it more expensive to to borrow and that incentivizes us to to borrow less and that will slow activity but we could you know banks and and, and consumers could simply ignore that and just do it anyway at a more expensive rate and therefore inflation would continue growing because activity is still high so at some point at some point uh I mean, it has to, it has to, like, it starts as indirect, but at a point it becomes direct to where, I mean, people's wallets can't take it anymore. You know what I mean? Like you can't yeah. go borrow money at seven, 8%, you know, like that's so, so I think at, there, there comes a time, but I totally agree. Like these small incremental 50 basis point hikes. Yeah, uh, you can ignore it for a while until it really starts to hit your wallet. And and for a while there, the the savings rate in the United States was at an all time high. After 2020, all the stimulus that came in, people had so much extra money than they ever had. Um, and, and so spending was, I think that's what started to accelerate inflation. And, um, you know, there comes a point when you don't have any money left in the bank and you need to go get a loan and you can't afford that loan. You don't get approved for that loan, et cetera. And so I think the fed can't, they can't directly bring inflation down, but 
I mean, indirectly, it's it's a pretty strong. They've got a pretty strong weapon, pretty pretty strong tool to bring it down. Yeah, for sure. It's it's definitely, it's yeah. It's 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 the best tool in in the U.S. market, in 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 my opinion. And I mean, um, going off of your 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 personal savings rate, um, you know, in in seeing that decline, it's actually the lowest it's been since roughly 20, 2013. It jumped over twenty four percent in COVID. And then it's back down to about five point six percent, which is far below everything we've anything we've seen. Um, you know, over the past ten years, it's basically stayed above six percent. So what they're what is what they're doing is working, right? Um, they're yeah. you know, saving saving uh, prices are going up, savings rates going down. That's going to have some sort of impact on consumer activity. If nobody has um, you know enough savings in the bank and that savings rate is declining people are going to have to start to pull back their activity pull back their spending that's going to rein in inflation um so it's an amazing it, you know as a as a person living in the united states i don't like seeing nine in 9.1 percent inflation on my things uh you know i'm i'm probably on the lower end of that because i've i do not drive a gas guzzling truck like you connor i get 36 miles to the gallon so um, I'm trying. You know. <laughs> I listed my truck for sale. I listed my truck for sale for. I, I listed it up for ten grand, and it's got two hundred and fifteen thousand miles on it. Had a wreck in it, you know. But hey, I painted it. Okay, it, it looks fine. <laughs> but but I have not gotten a that, single that message. It's been up for like two weeks, and no one wants it. Um, I guess. I, and all I want is like a Honda Accord, like a basic Honda Accord, something for relatively you know an affordable price less than 150,000 miles and I can't sell this dang truck. So um, maybe one day someone will come along and buy it. We'll see. Maybe. And it's one of you viewers that'll come and buy my truck. It's 10 grand listed on Facebook marketplace, Ram 1500. You'll get you some. Um, anyways, let's move on. Markets are hard, Jamie. Markets are really hard. And I was thinking back to the conviction that I had in a lot of different companies from I don't, a year ago, two years ago, where you look at a company like Latchy, this is six months ago, pretty strong conviction in Latch. And yeah, there's obviously some bias there. There's bias in, you know, like I, I got to talk to Luke Schoenfelder, seemed like a great CEO. Um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity and sometimes you can hone in on opportunity and forget about valuation. I think is something or path to profitability or free cash flow or how are they going to generate free cash flow in the next few years? And you just like all of that just went out the window because there's so many companies that for the past four or five years have benefited from this euphoria in the stock market where valuation really isn't that important. And you can hold a multiple at 30 times sales or above for years on end, issue more stock and continue to fund your operations until you reach profitability. And sometimes, I mean, maybe, maybe you reach a point where you're not profitable, but at the flip of a switch, you can become profitable. And I think we saw that in, in a few companies as well. And so there's a company like Latch, came public through a SPAC 2021, in the middle of all of the euphoria. Stock shot up, Jamie bought their stock at the peak um, on the way down. <laughs> I bought some of their stock and, um, you know, I mean, at $9 a share, I was like, this is fantastic because look at this opportunity in real estate with, with multifamily living. Like they, they really can 
take over this market. And for those that don't know, Latch is a company with smart locks, um, really changing the way that apartments are, you know, run. Uh, it's like a SaaS model for smart locks for apartments. The landlords are the ones that are paying the fees, makes everything safer, uh, makes everything a little easier for all the customers and kind of gives that value proposition to landlords to give to, to all the potential um, all the potential customers or tenants. So that's what Latch is. And I thought the opportunity was huge. They were in like 10% of all new apartments in the United States when the company came public that they were being implemented. I was like, wow, that's that's pretty incredible. Um, you know, and and for some for some weird reason, I didn't care too much uh, about the fact you know, that they have zero percent gross margins, negative three hundred percent operating margins, you know, yeah. profitability. Um, yeah, you know, those, any those cash things. generation whatsoever. <laughs> I, I, I say, I say this as a shareholder still, I do own the company still. Um, but you know, so anyway, continue. We, we only have to see a 15 X for you to break even Jamie. It's no big deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just brutal. It's just brutal. And so, but there's something about that that makes markets so hard because this company, if it had gone public in 2019, sure, it would have dropped off in 2020 with everything else. But I think there's a chance that this company could have issued enough stock to really, you know, boost their balance sheet to allow them to weather a few more years until they can start to, you know, reach profitability. And so I think there are companies out there that are like this where they were unprofitable for so long, but Hey, they could hold a high multiple because they would talk about TAM and opportunity and uh, you know, where this company is going, you know, and, and they could just issue more stock, continue to fund operations for a really long time until they got to the point where they were actually building some intrinsic value to that company. And so it's just like, like, it's a, it's a timing component where you can look at a company like Latch and say, well, if the markets are the same for the next four years as they were for the past four, I can see this company being really successful. But rarely are the markets the same for eight straight years. And, you know, I mean, I guess we saw that from what, 2012 to 2020, around there, maybe with the slight dip in 2018. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think that's another thing that makes markets so hard. Same thing with Fubo TV, you know. So, yeah, I there's there's one company that came public. Um, I believe it was early last year, um, some sometime in 2021, where the business. I think, I personally, I believe that this business is so strong. And Zane and I did a uh, did a video on on Semrush a couple months back, so you guys can go check it out there in a little more detail, but, um, you know, it's, it's a search engine optimization platform, um, you know, uh, uh, among other things, the, the SEM in SEMrush stands for search engine management. And it basically wants to help businesses, um, you know, increase their, their visibility online, reach their target audience via marketing, not necessarily only advertising, but, but through marketing. Um, so not, not a trade desk competitor or a Pubmatic or anything like that. So, 
but the business is really, really strong. Is it the fastest growing company in the world? No, but in, in their first quarter, their revenue was about 57 million. That's up from 40 million the year ago period, losing just $2.6 million, but free cash flow positive, a net retention rate of 127%. That's been consistently expanding the entire, you know, since, since they've came public. That's really impressive, yet shares are down 61% from their all-time high and basically flat from where they came public at in um, in last year. I believe they're up like 2% or something, um, something bananas like that. So, I mean, if if this company came public in, in 2018, 2019 or something like that with these same types of financials with, with you know, break-even uh, profitability, but generating cash, strong growth, strong adoption in a, a, a being a leading marketing platform that I think a lot of businesses need to have, uh, you know, to, to effectively operate their marketing teams, I'm... I, I would be hard pressed to find a case where where that where where a company like that wouldn't thrive uh, if it came public in 2018. But now, of course, it didn't come public in 2018. It came public in 2021, and you know everybody hates tech stocks now, and so the company's down substantially from from its all time highs. Like I like I said, and so I think it's really difficult because you can see a really high quality business, I think like SEMrush or a company with insane potential and a huge TAM like Latch. You can see those companies come public, have a case for them, but just because of, you know, whatever market sentiment is going on, you know, at that moment, they could be terrible short-term investments. And I think that's why, um, you know, I, I don't want to speak for Connor, but I can pretty confidently say that's why we're long-term investors. We're not trying to to gauge market sentiment. What we're looking for is high quality businesses um, that, that can thrive over the next 10 years, not necessarily the next year um, or, you know, 18 months or something like that. So um, it's it's really interesting. The, the markets The markets are extremely hard because you can find quality businesses and just get, you know, absolutely reamed because, um, you know, because of turning market sentiment. Yeah, but but I think it also brings me back to the point where it's like valuation actually matters. You know, you look at a company like Latch and they're down 90%. That's a 15x to get back to break even. And it's like, okay, 10 years from now, this company may be very successful and it may be a really good investment which I think for the next two years, it's going to be really hard for this company to not go bankrupt, um, to be quite honest with you. But, um, you know, say 10 years down the road, extremely successful company. This is great. Well, you could see something like Cisco, where Cisco was the most valuable company in the world in 1999 or 2000. They still haven't reached those levels. And Cisco's a good company. They're a very quality tech company even today. And they still haven't reached those 2000 levels. And so like evaluation does matter. Like, I, I think a lot of people think when you hear an investor say value, you can pay whatever price for a quality business and it doesn't matter. Well, it does. But you have like, if there's I think there's extremes on both sides, right? Like you have Amazon where up until 2005, you could pay whatever price you wanted and it's an extremely successful investment today. And then you have a, then you have a Cisco 
where from 1999 to 2000, you could have paid whatever price and you still wouldn't have reached those levels today. And so it's like, and, and Cisco's not a bad company. It's not a bad company. It's just its valuation got so absurdly high that it couldn't reach those expectations. And so, you know, I think there's extremes on both sides, but I totally, like I get where people come from. I mean, I used to be one of those people. I think I have the words valuation doesn't matter has have come out of my mouth before. And, and it's funny, you know, like you think like, I have changed so much in the last year as an investor. Um, you know, it's like, I think back to things that I was thinking and saying a year ago and I'm like, wow, I've come like, I have changed so much. Like my thought process has changed so much. There's no FOMO in me whatsoever. It's like every single investment, I'm like free cash flow, profitability. What, what's happening? You know, return on invested capital. Like those, those are the things that I'm looking at. And a year ago, I was like, revenue growth. Where's it at? Is it 100? percent I'm buying. Don't care what it is. Fubo TV, Latch. I didn't buy Fubo TV, but I did buy Latch. Um, and, and so, you know, like you definitely change. And I think it's just part of becoming a, you know, complete investor where it's like you are going through an entire market cycle where, yes, I was there for 2020. It was the shortest bear market in the history of the world. Okay. It was like what, two months, um, you know, it, it bottomed in March and started in February. It started in January, you know, like it was, it was such a short, uh, such a short bear market that it really didn't give me any time to develop. And here I am in this bear market and I feel, you know, like I'm, Maybe, maybe this is teaching me a few things, which is great. I, I, I love, you know, I love developing. I love learning. I love becoming better. Um, you know, perspectives changing. Has, has anything like that happened with you? One, 100%. I mean, I, I'm similar to you, Connor. I've changed substantially, substantially. I mean, free cash flow is probably the biggest thing that is that has changed for me i mean i went from you know looking at it very similar to it's just like uh you know is it there if not how can i make the case that it's okay that it's not there to nowadays while i do have some companies that are free cash flow negative in my portfolio um though that company unless it is you know a completely understandable reason and it you know there's clear short-term implications that you know hey we'll be free cash flow negative for a quarter or two and and then we're getting that other than those few cases every single one of my companies has cash flow has positive cash flow and i don't really buy any companies anymore that don't have that because i learning and you know especially in a bear market where you know oh a recession was always a risk you know, that, that I had to pay attention to, but now that it's actually here, it's like, okay, well, crap. Now I actually need to think about, uh, you know, these cash burning companies that are just j throwing cash out the window. What's going to happen to them in this realistic scenario where they could go bankrupt if they're just continuing to burn cash and they're ex seeing activity decrease that, you know, Revenue growth is is temporary and that can change really easily. But if you're a solidly cash generating business, that's really hard to get rid of. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that's what I what I have learned most, um, you know, over over the past few years and especially, you know, actually looking at inflation and a recession 
face on a, a you know a real a, a real recession with true inflation that hasn't honestly happened in my entire life since I was born. So I mean, looking at these things literally in in the face, it really helped me kind of refine and figure out what I truly need and not just what I you know want to to find for a high quality business. So yeah, I very similar to you, I've changed uh, you know a bunch in terms of what I look for. Yeah. And I think that the, the important part um, is not letting these things fade away when we see another raging bull market, you know, like that's, that's where you really develop is if you can hold on to some of this stuff. Um, Zoom valuation from ARC. One of the craziest things, and this, this came out a few weeks ago. Um, so we're a little late to the party. This is June 8th when they came out with their, um, their valuation of zoom and wow is it, it it might be the craziest thing that i've ever seen um i, I just don't i just don't understand the purpose of this okay so so their bull let's, case let's hear, let's hear the price target yeah i want to yes. i, I, I want to bull this. case is two thousand dollars a share for zoom in 2026 their bear case is seven hundred dollars a share in 2026 What's their share price right now? Like 150 bucks? Is um, less, less, I, less I think. Um, let's see. I'm pulling it up right now. I haven't looked at Zoom in a price minute. Price 104. 104. Okay. So you said you said 700. By, yeah, by bear case is a 7x. <sighs> I mean, and then your base case is $1,500 a share. Which is compounding at seventy six percent annually by twenty until twenty twenty six. Like I just, I just don't understand. You know, like is this like what's the One point of, of putting out these? Like this has to be. This isn't like legit where an analyst sits down in a room and builds out a model and he's actually legitimately thinking. Okay. The bear case for Zoom is that it's seven hundred dollars a share by twenty twenty six. Like that's not like that's not something that someone sits in a room and thinks about and actually believes. Like I don't think I don't think they do. One of one of the um I, I, I was listening to the explanation of, of their model, and there were two things that stood out to me. And one was that by 2026, they estimated that they'd have about 80% of total Zoom users would be paying users at, I think it was one of like one of the top tier price valuation. And that's kind of, um, you know, insane to assume. And that, that, that was, I mean, granted that was their bull case and their bear case, I think was 20% of total users. But if you look at a, at any, any freemium model, um, and one that's coming to example, to example, right off the top of my head, just cause I was thinking about it is SEMrush. SEMrush has, you can use free product products. You can get their free trial and then they have paid services and their paid services are dirt cheap, dirt cheap. And they had millions of free users and, uh, and I'm pulling up, they had 87,000 paying customers in Q1 out of millions of past free users. Now this is a mission critical service and they their have, services wait, are, are dirt. They have, they, they've had, you know, in the hundreds of thousands, I believe in their 10 K it was upwards of 600,000 free users. 
Um, okay. There's there's a there's a freemium version, and then you can have like your your um, very similar to like a like a streaming platform where you can get like a month free, and then if you okay. want, you can move to that. So people have had like the month trial, but in the in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of free users, yet they only had eighty seven thousand paying customers in Q one. That's yeah for well, like a hundred bucks a year. Less, less. It is, yeah. you know, the, the cheapest paying, the, the cheapest platform is like 15 bucks a month. Um, so, you know, re- extremely cheap, especially when you're talking about enterprises that, you know, um, that, that have, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands. So it's crazy to think that 80% of people of all Zoom users would be paying users, especially for just individuals like like us. Yes, there will be a lot of enterprises that probably pay up for for some sort of sort of Zoom subscription, but assuming that eighty percent of all users for any business whatsoever is just absolutely, um, you know, that is you know the literal best thing that could ever happen to the business. That shouldn't be priced in. I don't think like that should not be your bull case if the world revolves around zoom your bear your your bull case should be a reasonable estimate not literally the best thing that could ever happen to a business yeah so yeah i to- i totally agree that's i i don't like i just don't the network effect that zoom has doesn't seem to be that strong to me because it's not someone sends you a zoom link and oh you have to create an account and you have to sign up for Zoom in order to have a conversation with somebody else, it's straight up, if someone, if a paying user sends you a link, you just hop on, it's no big deal. It's just like you're using the, the paid version. It's and, and like, that's not a strong network effect. The network effect is all my friends are using this, I have to use this too. And the thing about all of these different video platforms, video conferencing platforms, is they all work that way, where you get a link, you click on the link and you join a meeting and it doesn't matter if you have an account, if you pay for the service, anything else, you can just hop on. So you can use so many different platforms depending on who you're meeting with and it doesn't matter. You just need one that's paid for. So it doesn't matter whether it's Microsoft, doesn't matter whether it's Google Meets, doesn't matter whether it's Zoom. It can be any of those. It can be Cisco WebEx. It can be like, there's those are like the big four that are, that are used probably most often by businesses and you know zoom's value proposition is all about enterprise customers and enterprise customers have four main options that all work very well and if you look at those four main options of google meets of zoom of what did i say microsoft and cisco webex those are the four main options and then you look at what arc said was their moat or their competitive advantages they said infrastructure one, how many users they can have on their platform. Okay, Microsoft's got infrastructure. WebEx got infrastructure. Uh, Google Meets does. All of these companies do because they went through 2020 just like Zoom did, and they had to build out a really strong infrastructure to handle all of these video conferences on on the platform, on one single platform. And so, yes, they've they've all got the infrastructure. So cancel that one out. That's not a competitive advantage for Zoom. Enterprise features. Okay, maybe. Maybe maybe Zoom has some better enterprise features than Microsoft or, you know, other companies. And they talked about, you know, in their enterprise features, how it was nice for companies to just have one use for Zoom. 
So it's not Microsoft where you have a suite of different options. It's just video conferencing and that's it for Zoom. And I don't think I don't think that's a competitive advantage. I think that's like I, I mean, I guess it's nice to have, you know, when you're looking for a hammer to just have a hammer and the hammer doesn't have any other functions besides just that one function, and that's kind of what Zoom is. And and I I guess I I don't know. That's that's not really worth bashing. Um, you know, I think maybe they have, they can make a point there. Um, then they talked about artificial intelligence without going into how artificial intelligence is really going to benefit Zoom. They said, AI, Zoom has a lot of data. Uh, <laughs> we're going to, we're, you know, like, I just, I just don't, I don't get that. That. Um, that. that was my other gripe. That was my other gripe, Connor. It was the fact that they said they have so much video data and then they can use it and monetize it. And I'm like, okay, tell me, okay, sure. So you're you're just assuming that they create a completely separate, brand new, you know, feature that can somehow monetize all this data. I'm a fan of using data in artificial intelligence, but you got to tell me how they're gonna do it and how tangibly that can, you know, go move move into and be something tangible and an actual reality for, for zoom. I can say, Hey, Peloton can, you know, become a, an exclusive partner with planet fitness. Boom. They made a ton of money on their bikes. That doesn't mean they're actually going to do it like that. That might not make any fiscal sense. And there's no guarantee that it would actually happen just because they have the bikes doesn't mean they're going to make that partnership and become that provider of bikes in, in, you know, planet fitness or whatever gym or what have you. That, well, yeah, that you really grinded like, my gears. Like okay, just, just saying to... the word AI and then, you know, boom, there's an opportunity that is complete BS unless you have something to back it up that doesn't require com- making a completely new feature um, or, or platform within the business that you you shouldn't add that into your, you know, ideas if there's no hint at that actually becoming a reality. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It was just AI, 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 data, 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 data. Okay. So what are you going to do with it? How are you going to monetize that? What is Zoom's possibly like, okay, Peloton, for example, you just mentioned Peloton. If Peloton's collecting all of this workout information and all of this data, potentially you could use that to make unique workout plans for every single user. Okay. That's that's a subscription plan. Potentially I can see them monetizing that data somehow. Video conferencing. What do you do with it? What do you do with it? Are you like, like, I really, I really don't know. Like I can't, I mean, I'm, I'm brainstorming right now. Are you brainstorming? What do you, what do you do with that? I don't know. Jamie doesn't know either. Okay. So yeah, I don't know. I can't think of anything. Um, But the last, yeah, yeah. Sorry, before before we get too far off of it, I I was grinding my gears because I didn't remember the free users for Semrush. So just to correct myself, so no you know comments hate me on getting the wrong number. In twenty twenty one, they had five hundred thirty seven thousand free users um, out of okay. out of eighty seven thousand. So that's a what sixteen between sixteen and eighteen percent penetration rate between paying and free users. So. Not a lot, and that makes Zoom's, um, you know, estimate for eighty percent of all users being paying users kind of obscene. So yeah, that was it. Cool. Um, yeah, I always also messed something up earlier in this episode when I said savings rate. 
which was not savings, right? What I, what I was talking about. Um, total savings is what I was talking about. Uh, but anyways, um, there's our corrections for the episode. So don't bash us in the comments. Um, and then the last part, the last moat or competitive advantage that Ark said Zoom had was that they're, they have extreme independence and third-party integration. Okay, I'll take it. I'll take it. Like with Salesforce, Salesforce is it's really easy to set up a Zoom meeting specifically. I don't know if there's any integrations with Microsoft or Google Meets. I'd be surprised if there wasn't. Um, but at the same time, like, I mean, I'm... I'm not bullish on Zoom. Like, sure, they may be undervalued for what they can offer and they do generate a ton of cash. Um, but I'm not bullish on Zoom because I just don't think their product is night and day difference than anybody else. Like, I have been waiting like this. So we use StreamYard for, to make these episodes. This is way better than any other video conferencing platform that I use. It's better than Zoom. It's better than Google Meets. It's better than Microsoft. And this is just some small company that has developed this. And it's like, I swear it's way better than every, every other conferencing platform that we use, um, that I've used. And so, you know, I just don't, I, I, I don't think there's, I don't know. I'm, I'm just not bullish. I'm not bullish. Jamie doesn't sound like you're bullish either. No, the, the, the main, I, I, and granted, I have not studied zoom, you know, um, that much. So I am coming from a somewhat un, uneducated position here, but from, from those that are very bullish on zoom, the, the bull case that I've heard was getting a lot of integration, like zoom, um, zoom phones, I believe, I believe it's called yeah, it's this like hardware. Um, you know, yeah. This, this communications platform, but for, for an entire enterprise is the bull case. And, you know, that, that could be a thing, but from, from what I am looking at, Zoom has, you know, the highest penetration rate that I think Zoom could ever see was in the middle of 2020 when literally nobody was going into the office. Yeah, totally that was agree. that was their peak. If they could ever get to that level of penetration ever again, I would be extremely surprised. And so that's that's it right there for for me. I mean, unless unless somehow they can create so many additional offerings that they can get back to that to that level of activity, then I might reconsider. But I just see that they hit their peak. 2020 was their peak. And I, I see really I see it being really hard to get to that same level of penetration ever again. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a really good point. Well Jamie, I think that sums up everything for today. So we concluded everything. That was a good episode. That was really good. Reminder if you are still here on YouTube still watching this episode, which I don't think many people will. But if you are one of the two that is still watching <laughs> at the 50-minute mark, please go subscribe to Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This podcast is released over there every single week. Um, it might be a better platform for you as you're driving around, cutting the grass, whatever you might be doing. Listening podcasts uh, through those platforms is great. We'd love to have you over there. Um, it's not as much content as you get on YouTube because on YouTube, we release short 10-minute videos on why we own stocks, stock updates, that sort of thing. So definitely stay stay with us on YouTube. But if you're looking for just the podcast alone, please find us over on those other platforms. Jamie, that was great. Yeah, it was awesome. Thanks, thanks for having me as always, Connor. We'll see you guys next time. See ya.